Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode number 25 of the Talking Biotech podcast. And a very exciting podcast today because this one involves two people who I knew long before Talking Biotech podcast was even the hint of an idea. Uh, Two wonderful, brilliant women of science. And that's what's really cool for me is that these are old friends who are coming back to talk to us today. Uh, The first one is Kira Havens. And Kira is from Revolution Bio. And what they've done is engineered plants, not for food, but rather for their aesthetics. And coming up with ways to engineer color-changing flowers or flowers that respond or plants that respond to various stimuli that we provide. And how do you make plants that uh, can satisfy not just the human need for sustenance, but the human desires of aesthetics. And Kira will be with us in part one today. In part two, we start to dissect the Dirty Dozen. So every year, the Environmental Working Group publishes the Dirty Dozen, these foods that they try to tell us are such awful poison that we shouldn't touch them. I'm lucky to be joined by Dr. Natalia Perez. And Natalia is an expert's expert in things like fungicides. Uh, She understands chemicals and how well they help us control plant disease. And what's really outstanding is that Natalia joins me in part two today and talks about strawberries. She talks about the chemicals that are used and how dangerous really are they. Uh, Natalia, she's got two wonderful kids and she feeds them strawberries right out of the field. So the dirty dozen, well, if you know about what they really are, aren't so dirty. They're wonderful fruits and vegetables that allow us to have the safest food supply in human history and really great to listen to someone like Dr. Perez. So with that as our introduction to today, we're off to talk to Kira Havens from Revolution Bio. 
Today on Talking Biotech, it's really a, a pleasure to welcome uh, Kira Havens. She's the Executive Director of Revolution Bioengineering, which um, has been really a, a leader on a cutting edge that most of us don't think about, and that is ways to use biology in novel ways, in this case, to change flowers and ornamental plants. And welcome to Talking Biotech, Kira. Thank you so much for having me, Kevin. I've always wanted to talk to you for a long time as part of the Talking Biotech um, podcast because it seems like you've really tapped into a novel place that most people aren't thinking about. So could you tell me a little bit about the beginning of um, Revolution Bioengineering and just how it got started and where it's gone over the last couple of years? Definitely. Revolution Bioengineering got started back in 2014. Um, myself and a work colleague of mine had been talking about a academic project that we were working on. We were both working in the same lab at Colorado State University. And this project was a um, was an effort to have plants, which already take in a lot of signals from their environment, respond to those signals in a way that was easily available and presentable to people. So in the academic lab, the idea was that these plants would respond to a pollutant or to an explosive, and they would turn white. So different mechanism from what we eventually ended up doing, but the concept was the same. The color change would be a very uh, a very rapid indicator that something was different in the environment for these plants. And this actually got picked up by uh, NOVA when they're talking about how to make things safer, this this project was featured on one of their programs. And, you know, as plant biotechnology enters the mainstream, there's a lot of different ways it can be perceived, and quite often they can be perceived very negatively, especially when you're talking about plants being genetically engineered. That's something that folks are uh, maybe hesitant to kind of take a value. And so we weren't expecting, you know, open arms, but we were thinking maybe we'd get a little... Uh, a little bit of a uh, mixed bag. You know, why are you doing this? What's the point of this? You're messing with Mother Nature, those sorts of comments. But instead, we got something really interesting. We had people telling us that while they don't like GMOs, they really liked the idea of this plant that could detect explosives. And this was this was kind of mind-blowing to us as scientists because in our head, that was the same thing. The GMO, the concept of a GMO, that to us meant plants like this, new functionalities, new technologies, new products that could make life better. But to the people um, at large, people who are just watching NOVA, that's not what that word meant at all. In fact, I'd go so far to say that it's impossible for someone like me to make a GMO in the popular sense of the term because... Uh, I am, you know, from a small company, and I, it's just myself and my business partner, and uh, we, well, quite frankly, we're we're not your typical. Yeah, multinational. Uh, all over myself there. <laughs> well, the cost exactly. of yeah, the cost of <laughs> regulation. You know, if like to deregulate something, or you know, it, like that was a food item, and the testing you'd have to do. I would assume this is a very different level, a very different standard for what you're doing with ornamental plants. Yeah, that's right. It does require a lot of resources to get maybe your more traditional uses of biotechnology out into the market. Um, but what we realized was that there is a, a difference in 
there was a gap between the public perception of a GMO and what we did in the lab. And so we wanted to explore that gap and kind of see, is there such a thing as a good GMO? Is there such a thing as a beautiful GMO? And that's actually what led us to the flowers. And I really like that approach because, and it's brilliant in, in retrospect, because you never would have guessed that when people are perfectly happy with insulin and cheese and all these other things that come from recombinant DNA technology, perfectly comfortable, that there would be so much pushback and so much um, uh, nervousness about food products that would that came from a plant that was genetically engineered, even though the products are identical to those that are um, uh, come through non-transgenic plants. But this is what's so elegant about what you do, is that it makes something that people like for sensory reasons, one better. And who's going to object to that? Well, you know, that's that's the question, right? How difficult is it to communicate a concept and how can you communicate that concept better? And when it comes to food, food is so deeply ingrained in the culture and it has to do with the people we love and it has to do with childhood memories and there's a lot of additional emotional considerations that go along with the idea of food. But the nice thing about flowers is that uh, people are already looking for the specific things that we want to do. They're looking for new colors and new scents and new forms and new shapes. And so we're able to use the technology to make dramatic effect without engaging all of the questions at once. So we can start asking them incrementally, is this a good way to use biotechnology? Is this uh, how do you see this improving your life? Is this a, a better thing? And in horticulture, where people have been breeding flowers for centuries, it's a potentially very useful tool to work with lines that may not have all the genetic components that you want. If you really want a flower to be red, but instead it's pink, how do you get it to be red with a tool that does a little bit better than trial and error, that can be a little bit more precise, that allows you to design a little more effectively. And that's really, when I look at your website, um, is, is one of the most exciting things I see is just the ability to manipulate flower color, which is such a cool and, and, and fundamentally seems rather simple to those of us who have studied how flowers are colored. And, and actually, it's uh, really nice stories with RNAi back in the 80s that this is really where it was discovered in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. But um, could you go backwards and talk to us about the mechanism? How do you make a flower change its color? Yeah. So flower color is... Uh really interesting and in that it's very highly conserved throughout throughout the kingdoms. And I'm talking specifically about uh, anthocyanins here. So it, anthocyanins are the molecules that make flowers blue and pink and purple and red. They cover that entire spectrum. And these molecules, um, they're the same whether they're in blueberries or they're in apples or they're in roses or they're in violets. They're all the family of anthocyanins. There are other colors, um, but they're not quite as spectacular, I guess, when it comes to color change. Anthocyanins are really interesting because they are sensitive to their environment. And so when you change the environment that the anthocyanins are in, you're able to modify the color of those anthocyanins. And this can be as simple as increasing the pH. When the pH is low, you have a pink or a red color. When the pH is high, when you get basic environmental conditions, the color will be more blue or blue or purple. And uh, in 
flowers. The anthocyanins are stored in a compartment known as a vacuole. And differences in vacuole pH are controlled by a gene. So the concept here was that we could control the environment that the anthocyanins are in. We could control the pH of that uh, compartment. And we could have the flower change color from pink to blue and back again. Um, this is technically challenging, to say the least, because we are dealing with a lot of internal systems like to remain in balance. What we're basically asking the, the plant to do is change the pH of this one compartment on a time scale. And you might wonder, like, how is that possible? Well, plants, uh, plants have internal rhythms just like we do, just like animals do. Um, they are in one spot and in order to generate energy, they need to switch on the photosynthetic system when the sun comes up. And I'm using this in a very kind of general term here, but essentially there are promoters. A promoter I always think of as kind of the control region. It's the uh, place in a gene that turn, that really turns a gene on or turns that gene off. So you're looking at some, exactly. yeah, some very specific promoters that seem to be regulated uh, how. So there are promoters that are regulated um, with, by the internal circadian clock that the plant has. And these promoters perform cyclically. So at a certain point every day they switch on and at a certain point every day they switch off. And that means you get different amounts of protein at various points in the day. And so by connecting these promoter elements to the genes that control flower color, it's possible to have these genes uh increase and decrease over the course of the day. And there are actually some fun videos um, online of people using these circadian promoters to generate increasing and decreasing amounts of a light-producing gene called luciferase. Um, And you can watch the plants flash on and flash off over a, a certain time period. Yeah, there's actually some really cool videos that a guy named Roger Hangarder did with um, uh, just he shows plants moving through time and some of the mm-hmm. rhythms that they show. And, and so le- plants have these, and just for the audience, plants have these uh, cycl- cyclically controlled genes that allow them to actually predict when light is coming on and kind of prime the plant for the onset of light and also the onset of dusk. But if you watch these videos online, you see plants that almost look like they're dancing because the time lapses, you see the plants moving their leaves in specific patterns or closing and Mm -hmm. opening. And um, in this case, there's gene expression that accompanies that. And it sounds like what they've done here is hook up the genes that control the flower color to these light on a dark off promoters. Is that how I'm is that seeing it right? That is the plan. And the reason I keep saying the word plan is because we haven't actually built this one yet. We've just designed it. What we have built is a flower that responds to its environment to ch- and changes color accordingly. So you have a plant that blooms white. If you share your beer with it, the plant will bloom pink in the next five days. So the whole new crop of flowers will be pink. So you can have a garden that goes from pink to white. And that, that's kind of like you could have a breathalyzer flower on your dashboard. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, a little bit, sure. It may not change change as quickly for when you're in the bar, but um, when we were talking to folks in the Netherlands, they made the joke that, well, we could plant them around the house, and so when the drunk Englishmen come over, <laughs> we'll know if someone's been peeing up against our, our wall. <laughs> well, that, that's actually how they, I think that's how they discovered oxen, was by uh, analyzing, oh, really? the, yeah, I think it was because of, uh, the, I know they isolated it from urine, but I think we're getting hints because of, 
the habits of scientists around a building somewhere or something in Germany. That could be a, uh, it was a lab named Kugel, <laughs> K-O with the umlaut G-L. I, I may have that wrong, but um, so what else um, is in the pipeline? What are some of the other big ideas from uh, Revolution Bio? Yeah, well, right now we are uh, kind of transitioning. We started out as a company, but it's become very clear that what I'm interested in is this conversation about how to best use biotechnology. And so we're actually morphing into a nonprofit. So this upcoming year, we're going to be taking the time to really lay the groundwork for that, get a donor base going, and really encourage people to be creative um, with their use of biotechnology and consider what good design is in that space. What we'd really like to do moving forward is have a line of flowers that do different things that are, and uh, maybe respond to the people that are growing them in particular ways and possibly just have very specific aesthetic properties that we wouldn't be able to achieve elsewhere. Um, I have an idea for polka dots, which I think might work. Um, there's the concept that we could bring in patterns by using promoters for various sections of the flower, you know, a petunia, for example, looks kind of like one round circle or morning glory. Those The flowers don't have a whole lot of petals, but each of the individual portions of that flower, the rim, the veins, the, um, the corolla, these are all independently regulated by their own separate promoters. So it could be possible to, you know, create a petunia with a a blue ring and a white star on a red background for the 4th of July or something like that. I would really love to become a very technically proficient artistic plant breeder, if possible, and and take requests, really. You want a custom flower for for your mom? Well, let's sit down and talk about it. Let's talk about her favorite colors, her favorite smells, and see if we can make one just for her. It's really a, it's a very doable thing because we understand more and more about these promoters which we touched on briefly, but just for what it's worth to, to this audience, is that promoters are controlling not just when a gene is turned on, but also where. And so mm-hmm. this is the beauty and how it applies here in these flowers, is that you're able to um, perhaps turn on a, a promoter or turn on a gene that's associated with one very specific cell type or very specific compartment. To me, that's pretty cool. I know they've really mapped out roots. Like Phil Benfey's lab has used the green fluorescent protein to exquisitely determine which which promoters are most active in discrete portions of the root. And if you mm-hmm. wanted to make crazy colored bullseye carrots and things, they'd probably do that too. But I bet the same thing applies yeah. in, in flowers. I, I don't know how, how different the petunia is from others, but has have people really gone to that resolution in petunia flowers yet? There are, um, when you're looking at the meristem, kind of the pre-organ, there's been a lot of in, uh, individuation there with, um, you know, the various layers and, and indicating which proteins are produced when. For flowers in general, the um, the focus has really been more on kind of a creating a dramatic breakthrough achievement. And in this case, the color is blue. It has been the focus for a really long time. So there's not quite the the precise knowledge of all the individual promoters that correspond to all the individual tissues. Um, one thing that does complicate flower production, particularly with anthocyanins, is that you know, all all of the pathways in an organism are connected. A molecule used in one pathway can go on to be used in another. And in anthocyanins, what happens is in the beginning of the flower development, anthocyanins are produced. And then 
in petunias, at least. Those anthocyanins are um, precursors to anthocyanins. They're instead shuttled into the scent pathway. So there is a very complicated network that goes on, and the trick is to find a promoter that not only expresses at the very beginning when the flower is just beginning to bloom, but also all the way through um, the flower's the flower's growth cycle. So that that may require a little bit of research to get a bigger toolkit for for making our um, our more creative flowers, I guess. But there's there's a lot we can do with what's out there right now. Well, it also seems like the other um, colors in the palette that you could use would be things like chlorophyll, that in a normally white corolla limb in the white part of the petal, you could um, express perhaps uh, something that would retain the chloroplast or maybe um, you know other types of pigments like xanthophils or other um, types of plant pigments. Uh, but it seems like the anthocyanins are really the most well understood in terms of their regulation at this point. That's definitely the case. The interesting thing about anthocyanins, as I said before, is that they're very well conserved throughout a lot of different plants. And the main pathway for anthocyanins is completely spelled out. You can go from a colorless molecule to pink, purple, or blue, um, you know, within a very defined set of steps. What really gets interesting is the decorations that go onto these molecules at the end. Are you adding a hydroxyl group or an acyl group or a methyl group? And what enzymes add these groups on in which plants. Um, so when you think about it, if you were to think about the difference in color between a strawberry and a currant and a apple and a tomato, right? Tomatoes, I guess, have lycopene in them. But uh, the anthocyanins between all of those are just very slightly different. And this is due to those end uh, process enzymes that add different decorations to each of those molecules. And you could bring new flavors, new colors of red into flowers. You know, in the floral industry, there's a hunt for a perfect red, for the perfect red rose. And maybe that comes from a strawberry. Who knows? Um, yeah. That's interesting because you have the blue. And blue is a very difficult color to find in flowers. The ones that you do see it is, are things like hydrangeas where it's a pH influence. But is yours a mm -hmm. different pigment or is it still a special kind of anthocyanin? Well, there are a couple different different options that you can pursue to find the color blue. Um, Terenia is another flower that has a, a naturally occurring blue, the Himalayan poppy. And it seems as though the more hydroxyl groups you have on an anthocyanin, the bluer it ends up being in basic conditions. And morning glories, of course, start bright blue, and actually as they fade, the vacuole changes pH and they move more towards more of a purpley-red color. In hydrangeas, in particular, this is an interaction between the molecule and the metal ion, and controlling the uptake of those metal ions, as anyone who has ever attempted to get a hydrangea to turn blue, um, that can be tricky depending on your soil and what you add to it. Um, and pulling metal ions and metal ion transport, that's once again a very big and complicated system that we may or may not be able to control very well. The blues that are most interesting to me are blues that have the potential to almost act as like a living ink for the flower. So indigo-based blue color, that's a really appealing possibility. There is a group of proteins called chromoproteins, which derive from marine animals, and these are proteins which have a color to them. And, you know, most proteins are, are so small, the wavelengths of light just 
bounce right off them and they're they're essentially invisible. But this group of proteins is very closely related in in many cases to green fluorescent protein, except they they absorb light in the visible spectrum. So you're left with a very distinct color. So those two avenues, I think, are really interesting for uh, for flower color research. I will say, though, that the folks working on this, um, the people at Floragene, they have been investigating this area for a really long time, and they have not yet been able to make either of those avenues successful. So there's probably... I've looked, again, some research, some investigation to figure out where the sticking point is and how we could make use of these, of these different types of blue in the, in the floral industry. How does somebody who's interested in these get involved? I know that you're, so you're now a, uh, um, a, uh, um, no longer a corporation. You're the other kind of thing. What it, <laughs> you're no, <laughs> the nonprofit, the nonprofit. Sure. Uh-huh. Okay. And so, uh, how does a how does a nonprofit when this kind of R and D is very expensive and very costly? I, it has to rely on donations. And so, how do people get involved to donate? And what do they get for their donations? Yeah, it it definitely does rely on a community of people who are really passionate about about what the nonprofit does. And in this case, I think. Uh, you have a, a large number of folks who are really passionate about biotechnology, the good it can do, and, and hopefully the beautiful things that can be, can create. So I would encourage all of them to come to the website and uh, sign up to be a part of the revolution, be a part of RevBio, and uh, either contribute financially or volunteer to work on a project. One thing that we'd really like to do is bring on um, – uh, involve DIY bio folks who are interested in this sort of thing and would like, maybe they don't know exactly what project they want to do, but they want to try something, we can help work with them there. What we'd like to be able to offer is a packet of seeds for donations. We would like to accept your financial contribution and return to you a packet of engineered seeds that will turn uh, with a plant that will bloom pink whenever you share a beer with it. That's pretty cool, but I don't want to share my beer with plants. That's the only... <laughs> It's going to be the whitest flowers on the street. Um, but that's well, really there's, cool. Maybe there's some leftover beer or something. <laughs> that's true. You know, I, I, yeah, I usually give those to the dog. And what I'll do is I'll, um, I, I know that I'll definitely dive in on this because I've watched you guys for a long, long time and have always just admired the website. And it's so friendly and so artistically well done. And just a pleasure to navigate and learn so many cool things about how this works. And it's a science lesson inside a uh inside of a, a product and um and it, so i'm i'm involved i'm i'll get in i'll get in soon on this and where do you do that definitely you can come visit us at uh, www.revolutionbio.co we are based in colorado um that's where we were founded and so it's not a typo it's just .co <laughs> okay so that's pretty cool if you could design one really cool product that you could, let's just say, was scientifically feasible, but maybe technically a bunch of hurdles. What do you think that would be? What would be the big thing that you would love to offer? I want to redesign the chloroplast genome uh, so that it effectively, more effectively picks up sunlight, converts it into energy, and we're able to kind of leapfrog over this persistent problem of uh, photosynthetic inefficiency, because I think this has huge ramifications for everything from traditional agriculture to, you know, any plant that you are interested in growing anywhere, including, you know, Mars, should we ever get to that point. I, you know, at this point, we have the ability to 
to synthesize very large portions of DNA. We have the ability to bring in multiple improvements at once. I think there's a lot of really interesting design that can go on in the chloroplast, and we can we can turn that into a real powerhouse of, of productivity and creativity. No, super cool. And, and can anybody uh, learn more about you from Twitter or any other places in social media? Definitely. Yep, we're on Twitter, Revolution Bio. Um, it just, and I'm personally at Kira underscore Havens, K-E-I-R-A underscore Havens. And yeah, Facebook too, we're uh, Revolution Bioengineering um, uh, on the page there. There's 600 folks just about right now. We'd love to have more of you having a conversation about beautiful biotechnology. And I just liked you today. <laughs> I never visited Excellent. the Excellent. Well, that's perfect. <laughs> I never visited the Facebook page before surprisingly. I've been on the on the regular website often, but well, thank you so much Kira for joining me today. It was really exciting to learn about uh really different use of genetic engineering and and just making better looking plants that make people excited about science. So thank you very much for that. You're welcome, Kevin. I've really enjoyed being on the show. Well, thank you. So that's Kira Havens with Revolution Bio. Check him out online anytime soon. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll be right back. Hi, everybody. It's me, Kevin. And thanks a lot for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. I went on hiatus back in November for lots of reasons, and I don't need to go into that here. But what I never expected was the flood of kind emails, tweets, and wonderful Facebook comments that reinforced exactly why this is an important activity. Now, being away was awful. It it sucked. (laughs) I'd go for a run and hum the theme song and hear Norman Borlaug and Carl Sagan scolding me all the time. (laughs) I really felt like a loser. I mean, I was betraying my heroes. (laughs) If Norman Carl were here today, I'd get an atomic wedgie and a punch in the face. That's because we're here to discover and find the truth, and they knew that. Now, I don't have excuses, but I've got reasons, and I won't let that happen again. I learned a lot from this exercise. I really do look forward to sharing the experience and really look forward to talking to you every week. So thank you so much. And tell a friend. Spread the news about the Talking Biotech Podcast. And thank you so much for listening. Today on Talking Biotech, I'm answering some of your letters and some of your emails that come to TalkingBiotechPodcast at gmail.com. And one of the frequent questions I get is about the environmental working group's Dirty Dozen, or whatever they call it now, um, that allegedly talk about fruits and vegetables that are so uh, covered in chemistry that you wouldn't want to eat them. And uh, we've also seen that meme that goes around of the strawberry with all the chemicals that are allegedly found on it next to the other one that says organic strawberry, just strawberry. And to sort this all out, I figured I could talk to an expert who knows all about what you use on strawberries and just how problematic they are. And so we're very fortunate today to be able to talk to Dr. Natalia Perez. Dr. Perez is a strawberry pathologist extraordinaire. She's been widely recognized for her expertise and uh, as an international expert. And we're very fortunate to have her here at the Gulf Coast Research and Education Center down near Tampa, Florida. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Perez. Thank you very much, Kevin. Glad to be here. 
it's really great to be able to talk to you like this because we we've done so many things together before and this is just a really good question for you so strawberries you know them well do you let your children eat them Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, I, I let my children in. I eat them uh, many times straight from the field. And uh, to be honest, I eat many of the fruits and vegetables there are on the dirty list. And uh, there are a couple that I don't eat, but that's just because I personally don't like them. <laughs> and so what, what you, you know the dirty dozen list. And, and, and um, it says, like, they'll say, well, they're covered with 52 different fungicides or different ins- insecticides. What is really the story? Like, how often do our strawberry producers have to use chemicals on strawberries? Yeah, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding with with the least. And uh, uh, if you look at that number, the number is probably right for the number of fungicides that are registered or labeled to be used in this in the crop in the strawberry crop. Uh, um, however, th- those products they're not applied all at the same time. Um, there might be one fungicide or one insecticide applied each week during the season if you have pests or if you have diseases of concern. But um, we have to think that it takes uh, anywhere from three to five weeks from a strawberry flower to become a mature fruit. So um, each fruit is usually only exposed a few times to those materials during, let's say, its life cycle. Um, the other thing about the dirty list is that it doesn't uh, consider all the pesticides to be equal. Um, they're not. They're not the same. Uh, some are more toxic than others, but um, not necessarily toxic to us. Sometimes they're toxic to um, fish or birds or um, other things. But um, the the main problem is that it doesn't uh, compare the amount of pesticides on each of the crops. Um, EPA is the Environmental Protection Agency that regulates pesticides, has a, what they call reference dose for maximum amount of that number, and it's actually a very conservative estimate. And, and the reality is that none of the crops listed in the um, dirty dozen have exceeded the residual levels determined by um, EPA for, for any of the pesticides they are tested. So the reality is that even the top crop in the dirty list, which I um, don't know which one it is now, has very, very low pesticide levels. And um, the health benefits of eating fruits and vegetables, I think, uh, highly exceed the risks from the um, pesticide residues. I think that's one of the areas that's really kind of unfair because we really want people to consume more fruits and vegetables Yet this kind of uh, rhetoric, like the dirty dozen, may scare people away from eating something that really is inherently much better for them in terms of benefit than there ever is from the risk. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about the risks of the fungicides that are used, like the ones that are most common. Are they really targeting humans or are these targeting fungi or specific metabolic or structural aspects of fungus? Oh no, they're they're very um, specific for um, fungi. Like a, um, like I said before, the, the risk is 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 very very low. Um, fungi they're classified in a totally separate kingdom from plants, for animals, or or even from uh, bacteria. They're microscopic 
organisms, but they're even um, different from bacteria. And uh, the process of registering a fungicide is it's very rigorous, and it, it goes through many many years of testing, which is, is like developing a drug for 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 humans, um, where they look not only the efficacy of the product, but also um, to control the diseases. But they also look at the toxicity to other organisms, including insects, fish, animals. Um, you name it. Um, and, and some of the fungicides used for control of plant diseases are, in fact, very similar to what we use to control fungal diseases in, uh, in humans. And I like to make the comparison between human medicine and, and plant medicine, which I would say is, is what I do. I'm basically a plant doctor. And, and when you're sick, you have the option to go to the doctor and use the best medicine that's out there to treat your fungal disease and and that drug has gone through many years of testing before registration and it's, it's the same for um, fungicides that control plant diseases um, these products are um, tested for many years um, to treat plant diseases without causing any harm to anything else and what, one of the things I really appreciate about your talks and your research is seeing how much how your research has contributed to actually decreasing the application of different fungicides and the, the need for fungicides. So could you talk a little bit about that, about uh, how you've been sinking application to uh, minimize applications uh, based on weather? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So, um, well, let, let me start by saying uh, first that um, strawberries, it's a very sensitive and, and perishable fruit. The, the plant itself, it's quite resistant, but the flowers and the fruit are very susceptible to diseases, which is my area of expertise. And strawberry is also a high-value crop, which means growers need to invest a lot of money per acre just to grow that crop. And losses due to diseases um, can, can reach at certain times during the season up to 80% of the crop. So that, that means that growers would be basically throwing away the fruit and all the money they invested on that crop at those times during the season. So traditionally, what growers would do to um, protect their their crop is to um, spray um, fungicides on a preventive basis. In other words, they they would spray to avoid the risk of losing the crop and ending up with no fruit. Um, With the research we developed here at the University of Florida um, over recent years, we developed this um, web-based monitoring system where we monitor weather conditions and we can then tell growers exactly when conditions are favorable for disease development and does um, fungicide applications are needed. Uh, So by following our system, um, it has allowed strawberry growers in Florida and, and, and now in a few other states to spray fungicides only when they really need to instead of um, spraying on a preventive basis. And this has resulted in, in a reduction of, I would say, about half of the number of fungicide applications. Of course, depends on the year and depends on the weather conditions um, when we compare to the traditional program of preventive applications. So it's just a more precise and a more sustainable way to, to control um, the diseases we have on, on strawberries. 
And it's really impressive because what you've done is essentially understood the weather conditions that are most conducive to fungal growth and proliferation. And then the weather stations around the region monitor the weather. And when it hits those thresholds, it sends a text message to the grower that says, today's a good day to spray. Is, is that kind of how it works? Yes, exactly. That That's that's how it works. And, and that's what growers really like about it is that they don't really have to think much they uh we we did all the computer work and all the modeling work and then um we're collecting the weather data and and as soon as we have conditions that are favorable for disease they get a text message or an email message on, on their computer telling them okay now is the time to to spray that's really cool and so where if someone wanted to look at that online look at that website where would they find it so it's 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 open uh, to anyone. Uh, it's um, agroclimate.org, and uh, there are several other tools in agroclimate, and there's this specific tool for um, strawberry diseases. So agroclimate.org. Okay, that's really cool. Uh, what about the, the people who say, well, we should just eat organic strawberries? I mean, I know that, that it's really hard to grow strawberries without using any kinds of protection. So what do they do for organic strawberries? Yeah, I think that's, that's again, another misunderstanding, I think, that people have that um, that organic strawberry, um, they, that they don't spray anything. Um, that's not uh, real true. Um, in fact, uh, in the case of, of strawberries, which, like I said before, it's very susceptible to diseases, um, growers might even spray even more than the conventional um, growers because those products that they spray, they're not as effective. Um, the, the difference with organic and the conventional um, strawberries is that the materials used in organic, they are considered natural, which just means they're not synthetic. It's, it's, it's something that's natural, natural, which doesn't necessarily mean they're safer. Um, in fact, I would say there's far more research behind the registration of any chemical fungicide than there is behind the registration of organic material. So at, at the end, growers might end up, uh, organic growers might end up using products that they just um, don't know as much about it or there's just not as much research about it. So I would say, again, um, it's the choice of using that best medicine that you have out there to treat your health pro- problem or your disease, or you can go to a vitamin shop for we're boosted and hoping that that will help. So uh, the bottom line is is that in both cases they're they're sprayed, they're treated because growers need to protect their crops. The only difference is the choice of the material use. Um, the other difference is that USDA doesn't actually test for organic pesticides as it does for the synthetic pesticides, which is what they have in the dirty list. So we have no data on residues on organic scrubbers uh, or, or any other crop. Uh, if the organic product produce were, were to be tested, uh, I'm sure they would be in, in the list too. Um, I, again, the only difference is it's just the materials that are used. But to be fair, I think in, most, in both cases, both in conventional and in organic, the materials are generally pretty easily removed just by washing. Isn't that kind of true? 
Uh, it's you know it's it's kind of true. Uh, I think there's there's still uh, you can still detect the residues and and, and during the process of um, extracting the, the residue for testing, they do wash, but you still have um, residue. But um, washing is still a good practice, but it, it doesn't really remove all the residues either for the synthetic materials or the organic materials. So really for both uh, conventional and organic, really the solution is maybe coming up with breeding techniques that give us improved germplasm or improved varieties. And how do you see those trends going both for, say, conventional breeding or maybe genetic engineering? Uh, I think uh, if, if what people are looking for is for uh, a strawberry or a crop that uh, doesn't have any any pesticide residue, I think I see genetic engineering as the best the best way to get there. Uh, it would be really the only way to produce strawberries and, and many other crops without using uh, pesticides. Um, we've been doing breeding of crops for thousands of years, and uh, genetic engineering is, is basically a way to expedite this the traditional breeding. Uh, it can take, as you know, a long time to develop a new cultivar with the resistance or other characteristics that you want to, but we can be a lot faster and a lot more precise with genetic engineering. But um, for some reason, it's it, it saying uh, um, we're being able to accept better the use of science and technology in, in human medicine when we're talking about saving lives than we accept the use of technology in agriculture, unfortunately. But... Um, I guess I guess we need to realize we're also talking about saving lives in this case as to lives of crops or the strawberries and and our food supply uh, or or the uh, the income or that farmer that is producing the, the food supply. So um, I think if we choose to um, use the technology in medicine to live longer, we really need to think about accepting technology to produce more food for all this all the people that we're going to have in this planet. Yeah, and that's really kind of the uh, take-home message of this podcast is how do we use innovative technologies to improve the situation for growers and for the consumer and, and others in the environment. And um, I really, when you were saying this, when you're talking about genetic engineering and strawberries, it occurred to me that we actually have published a paper together that shows just that, that there's a strawberry uh, gene, or we can increase strawberry resistance to disease with a transgene. Um, not perfect, but it, but it did seem to make a difference. So we, we've actually explored this. We have firsthand knowledge of that. Yes, exactly. And uh, like I said, I think that's that's really the best way to, to reduce uh, fungicide or, or pesticide use of, overall. It's going to be through um, genetic engineering. So thank you very much for spending the time with us today on this, Natalia. Um, if if people wanted to learn more about you and your program, where would they look? Uh, they can they can find me on the webpage of the Cove Coast Research Education Center uh, in Florida, University of Florida. Uh, they can also check the uh, the AgroClimate website, and and they can see real time all the different weather stations that we have monitoring. The, the weather for the strawberry um, growers and uh, the research that we're doing to help them to produce better strawberries. Okay, so thank you very much, Dr. Perez. We really appreciate you spending the time with me today on the Talking Biotech Podcast. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, really, really nice to be here with you today. 
And so it goes. Uh, episode number 25 is now in the books. It uh, really shows you why my job is so easy because all you have to do is sit down and talk to someone like Kira Havens and Natalia Perez and they do all the heavy lifting. All I do is ask questions. Uh, it really is such a pleasure to talk to brilliant people like Natalia and Kira and um, really nice to spend the time with you. I've learned a lot every single week I've done this and it's so good to be back. So thank you so much for listening to Talking Biotech number 25. Remember to send your suggestions to TalkingBiotechPodcast at gmail.com and uh, your questions or whatever you would like to know, and we'll cover it right here. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to TalkingBiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.